Hello everyone and welcome to episode 21 of the Sophos Naked Security Podcast. I'm Anna Brady and I'm here with Sophos experts Paul Duckman. Hello. Mark Stockley. Hi. And Matt Body. Good to be back. Oh. World. world. Oh, how? You can't how? get away from it. I can't. You've made the running. Now you have to keep going around the track, my friend. Coming up on today's show, Duck talks about what can happen to those calls that are recorded for training purposes. Mark tells us about how not to do bug disclosure. And Matt tells us if we're going to have to throw out our password managers. What have you been up to this week, guys? Me first. I have been trying to re-inform myself of why Android is the best and much better than any sort of Apple product. I can see why you struggle to get that story <laughs> out. Yeah. And why it is a work in progress. Yeah. And, and the way I've been doing that has been trying to do some Android app development, but a very, very basic Android app development. Well, I've had way more fun than that. I've dug a hole, which Ooh. is surprisingly satisfying. I'm, I'm starting to think about growing food, and uh, that means the hens are out in the chicken tractor, so I don't weed my vegetable plot. My hens do that for me because they're multi-use animals. Lucky you being able to grow stuff in your garden. I can't. Too I've... high a concentration of lead in my soil. Oh, really? Yeah. I've been told I can't... can't Maybe grow. a bit less shooting in the back garden. Ah, oh, yeah. <laughs> Stop that, doing that. Is that from old pipes? We don't know. Well... You uh, can. Oh. You can grow stuff. You just... It might not be a good idea to eat it. <laughs> yeah, I know. What's the point in that? Well, no, I agree. Gladiolus. Rose. You don't eat roses, do you? Yeah. Or nasturtiums. You can eat nasturtiums. Can you? Yep. Very shortage. You do, do you know? I think you can, but now I'm doubting myself. I feel like I need to Google it. Duck? I went on a small journey through Oxfordshire, and I came across something I didn't know was there but should have, namely the Salt Way. And apparently it's where salt was brought in medieval times from Cheshire, halfway to the, to the Scottish border, I guess, to London for preserving food. And the Salt Way, these guys had this little thoroughfare which doesn't go through many villages. So it must have been transporting salt. Must have been a very lonely life. It was just a mud track through the woods, but I didn't know that such a thing existed. My grandpa discovered a Roman road this weekend. No, he's dead. Once, okay. Sorry about that. Awkward. Yeah. <laughs> Back to cybersecurity chat. When you call up a health advice line and speak to a medical professional, you might well assume that the call will be kept confidential. That's not always the case, though, is it, as we saw in Sweden last week, Dirk? What happened? Well, Sweden has this service, Medical Advice Line, uh, 1177, after the number you dial. Very much, if you're in the UK, you might be aware of 111. It's the number you call when you have a medical issue, but it's not an emergency, so you're not calling 999 or 911. So you would like to think, perhaps, that the call would be recorded in case you need to refer to it later. But you would also like to think that they would jolly well look after it. And that didn't happen in this case. People from three different provinces or regions in Sweden ended up with their after hours 1177 calls, six years worth roughly, ended up on a server. And somehow somebody managed to connect the server to the internet where it was accessible to anybody who happened to stumble upon it. So it wasn't encrypted? Not only was it not encrypted, the actual connection was unencrypted. So it kind of looked like somebody had made a blunder with a NAS box, network attached storage. Someone had obviously plugged it into a network, not secured it properly, not closed off the web interface. And if you connected on the encrypted port, port 443, you would get unencrypted access to something like 2.7 million phone calls, neatly organised into directory structure with 
year, month, day. And apparently the file names actually included the number of the person who'd called. So why has it been collected for so long? How did it get on the internet? Why was it stored in a way that anyone inside this call center company apparently could have just wandered in and listened to it? So the Swedish data protection regulator is investigating and we'll have to see what comes out of this. Very, very bad look for the Swedish government. You, you said, how did it get on the internet there? And I think one of my, one of my friends and colleagues, uh, Ben, when he moved house, he found that his NAS device was online. He browsed to the, his IP address at home, expecting to see a web server that he does host at his home address. Instead, he was revealed with the login prompt for his NAS device. Uh, and he found that it was UPnP that was actually revealing that to the internet. I don't know whether that's going to be a common... <laughs> You'd like to hope that at a call centre company that's providing services to somebody who's providing medical advice to millions of people in Sweden, that they would have the same problem that someone would when they moved house and took their home router mm. with them. So you'd like to think that, but surely the truth that Shodan is slowly revealing to us is that actually we have no... There's no real justification for expecting that people are going to do things in a sensible way. There seems exactly. to be this inexhaustible supply of servers attached to the internet that have got no authentication on them at all. And this is interesting to me because it's 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 another way of doing it. You know, we're used to MongoDB databases or mm. you know poorly set up Amazon S3 buckets or Elasticsearch. This is yet another way to do it. And it, that says to me, either there's a lot of very bad admins out there, or actually network administration and systems administration is really hard. Or both. Yeah. In this case, of course, there's, to me, an even bigger question. Why were all those files online in one place, in one easily navigated directory structure at one go? Did we learn nothing from the era of Chelsea Manning, when 30 years of State Department cables were copied off and burned to cd and nobody noticed i mean this is a lesson we should have learned particularly if you know you are running a medical advice line for an entire nation it's a huge breach of trust so where does gdpr come into it you know anna i'm not entirely sure in this case because the other interesting part to me in this story is who takes the blame because obviously the swedish public service the government outsourced this mm. and the outsourcing went in this giant loopy circle the swedish public service contracted this 1177 service to a company we'll call x and x subcontracted for various parts of sweden to different subcontractors and for three parts of sweden they chose this company called m1 and M1 subcontracted the after-hours service to a company called M2 Brackets Sweden, close brackets, that was actually based in Thailand that did the after-hours support. But this Thai company actually then subcontracted the call center software back to a company called V, whose servers were based in Sweden, and that's where this blunder happened. Mm. I guess GDPR would agree that this data could or should be collected given its nature so who knows maybe in the end people in all of these companies down the chain and the public service will all be held liable mm. you, you mentioned earlier how they how it's a really bad thing to have these in one centrally centrally retrievable location which is online i see your point with the the whole why does this need to be online it really doesn't but the the centrally retrievable location bit 
I think in terms of convenience, when when somebody calls up and they say, I want to, I, I didn't say that on the phone last time, I, I didn't, you know, if they have to use that in a court of law, if it is evidential, then they need to be able to retrieve that information really easily, very quickly. And, but that doesn't mean it all needs to be unencrypted on the same structured disk storage, neatly organized in a directory tree where one person can go in and retrieve any file in an instant. Yes, they should have used encryption. Yes, they should have used passwords. Yes, they should have used two-factor authentication to get to that data. And yes, it should have only been internally retrievable. But there's no reason why having it in a good structure so that they can access that data and delete it when they need to is, is a bad thing, I don't think. It does seem surprising that all of this data, which kind of belongs, you'd imagine, jointly to the Swedish public service and to the individuals who made the call, what was it doing on a NAS storage device at the call centre company? Why did anybody think that was a good idea? Just to, to go back to the point I was making earlier, I mean, I'd love to talk to the systems administrators who were working on this system. And it's very easy to create a, a sort of business structure or a business model that is very efficient in terms of the way the business works, which then creates this enormous administration burden in some other part of the company, whether it's in, in how you administer the legal niceties or how do you administer the network. And I wonder if that, I'd love to see what sort of mess that chain of companies is hiding. So one wonders where else this data is living, because you'd imagine the Swedish medical service should have a copy. Presumably the calls are actually recorded by some computer system in Thailand. Is there a backup over there? And I guess that's a problem when you have all these layers of outsourcing, isn't it? According to the CEO of the the organisation that's ultimately responsible for this you know somebody somewhere plugged a cable into a NAS device that shouldn't have done now I wonder if that person has any other sort of liability or involvement with the rest of that system Mm. because it's so distributed you know it's quite possible that 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 person has got you know they're allowed to plug cables into boxes but maybe they have you know it's conceivable that they actually they have no idea what's on that box so what about the people that have called this number what advice do we have for them What we advised on Naked Security is you can go to the Medical Helpline Zone website, 1177.se, and they will provide information about your region. The very good news seems to be that firstly, it's only three regions in Sweden. And it was only after, if you, it was only after hours calls. It's not every single call. And it looks as though Everyone may have dodged a bit of a bullet here in that it's possible that the only people who went in and looked and retrieved some of the data were researchers or journalists trying to prove to the company that there really was a problem. Mm. So it doesn't seem to have led to a massive breach. It could have, but it probably didn't. So you can probably stand down from red alert. I presume next time you call, you could ask, will this call be recorded? I don't want to have it recorded if you're worried about this happening again. And if you're a system administrator, then for goodness sake, if you are keeping long-term records, you need to ask yourself, do they need to be online? Do they need to be in one place all the time? Consider having a penetration test done so that somebody can go and have a look under controlled circumstances with legal authorization from you. Better that someone finds you've made a mistake under those circumstances than that you find out and disappoint everyone as happened in this particular case. It's another great advert for the principle of least privilege. Mm. Absolutely.
Okay, on to our next subject. Last week we heard about some hackers taking matters into their own hands after a bug report was ignored on the social network VK. Mark, can you talk us through the story? Yep, so this is a story about a Valentine's Day gift from some disgruntled developers. And as you say, the recipient was the Russian social network VK.com. And for anybody who doesn't know, VK is big. It's not particularly well known in the English-speaking world. It looks a bit like Facebook. It's got about 500 million users, which means actually it's pretty big. So do they have a bug bounty program? Yeah, they do. So like lots of big social networks, uh, VK's got a big bug bounty program managed through uh, HackerOne, and that means that they offer rewards for people who find bugs in its software. At least that's the theory. So what happened here is the said disgruntled developers um, say that they reported a bug in VK.com a year ago. So it was reported on behalf of uh, a community called Bogosi. Uh, which is a social media app development community. Uh, According to them, the bug was ignored, it was unacknowledged, it was unfixed, and the bounty was unpaid. They were so disgruntled, they did nothing about this for a year, and then for some reason they decided on Valentine's Day that they were (laughs) going to do something about it. If you're feeling dissatisfied with a company's bug bounty program, well, what could you do? Well, you could just walk away. Uh, some might go the Google Project Zero route and try and disclose some details after a reasonable period of time. And you might even go as far as writing a proof of concept. What these guys did was they cranked it up to 11 and they decided to take this information about a vulnerability and turn it into a worm. They let their worm loose on the social network on February the 14th. Um, so yeah, it spread quite far quite quickly. It didn't do any damage other than I mean it didn't steal any data and both sides seem to have sort of hugged and make it, made up and they, they both seem to have agreed on this that it was a prank um, rather than an act of malice that you know the, the developers were trying to illustrate the problem rather than trying to exploit VK for money or something like that um, so how do we feel about this is it okay to do that to raise the profile of a bug in this way uh, no it's not no it really isn't <laughs> here here um not by any measure, and not according to VK either. So if you look at VK's HackerOne policy page, uh, they say, we consider the exploitation of discovered vulnerabilities to be extremely unethical and we will not provide a reward in such cases. It seems our readers on Naked Security were somewhat polarised on this, weren't they? Half the people came out saying, well, the VK developers must have made a mistake and they screwed up and they didn't do anything about it, so these guys taught them a lesson the only way they, they could. And other people saying, you know what? When it comes to my account, it's not up to you to decide you're going to mess with it. However you receive your bug report, whether it comes through a bug bounty program or from inside your company, you still have have to have a method for dealing with it. Mm. Um, And we've been sort of spoiled in a way, like, you know, occasionally we write up stories about bug bounties that Facebook have dished out. And the thing that sticks out about the bug bounties is how fast they fix things. Mm. I mean, you're talking about this like an enormous unfathomably large piece of software and they get fixes out in hours you know and and most of the places that i've worked you can't even find the right person to talk to in the time it takes them to fix a bug never mind dig into it and find out what the bug actually is never mind actually get it prioritized for fixing and finding the right you know who's the person yeah. that actually knows yeah. about what did you say thing? the serial number was again exactly i don't even recognize that product all bug bounty programs are not created equally and i think you know the the conversation about bug bounties has moved on recently it's 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 no longer a new thing and the conversation now isn't so much about should you have one now it's more about where does it fit in your organization you know 
is it an alternative to penetration testing? Well, no, it's not. It's kind of an addendum to that. It's a useful yes, thing to have, but you have it in addition to the other things that you do. And you still have to have a process for managing the bugs that come in. And if you look at the history of computer viruses self-spreading code, it's littered with stories of people who wrote self-replicating code that could, would and did prove a good security point, but also went haywire and caused massive problems. The internet worm from back in 1988, Code Red, Slammer, all of these things, Code Green, which was the worm that was supposed to jump in where Code Red hadn't gone yet and close the door behind it. Well, what happens if the system breaks? What happens if you're in the middle of a law enforcement sting operation? If you found a security yeah. hole which could allow you to penetrate my account, it doesn't mean you can come in and have a look yeah. around. It's not up to no, you. No, I, th- I think I think you've nailed it, and this is where I'm I'm 100% in agreement with, with v- VK about this. You know that this kind of thing is is extremely unethical. Uh, you know, for exactly the reason that you've stated, you you hope you know how this works, but don't tell me the people who wrote this code have got a secret test network of hundreds of millions of machines that they exhaustively tested this worm on first is it is much more likely they wrote this in an afternoon and it worked as they hoped mm. in which case it's a matter of luck rather than a matter of judgment they got no right to be running that code on somebody else's system and it's lucky for everybody concerned that that code did what they thought it was going to do in the face of the scale of system that it, it found itself worming through so it sounds like in this case it's an all's well that ends well but it's not really a blueprint for how to do security research and how to get your way in the future. I can imagine they'll struggle to get work in the future as a penetration tester based on that. So what do you think people in that position should do? So I think we're all agreed that you shouldn't go writing worms, but what, what do you think the right way to solve this problem is? That's a difficult question, and a few people commenting on Naked Security did make that point, saying, well, what were they supposed to do? You could go to the media... You could go to somebody like Project Zero. You could go to a full disclosure list and say, I've got this hole. You could describe roughly how it worked so that somebody else would have to do the research, not quite from scratch. As you said earlier, they waited a whole year. It wasn't obvious that anyone was on public notice that there was a deadline coming. Yeah, I mean, if this really did go down the way the developers say it did, that they reported the bug and they didn't have any response... This is exactly the situation that Google Project Zero was designed to solve, wasn't it? That that there is a scenario whereby you disclose something to a company and they make no effort whatsoever to fix it. And, and but it is Project... a matter of public record that on yeah. such and such a date yeah. the information's coming out. And whilst I don't always agree with the way that you know Google won't give you extra time and they they can feel quite judgmental. I understand their motivation. They're saying the reason at 90 days it just gets published is that way it's entirely objective. Everyone plays by the same rules. And the rules of, well, I found your front door open, so I'm going to come in and mess up all your furniture and sleep in your beds and eat your porridge. Not acceptable. Is that a Goldilocks reference? Might have been. (laughs) Nice. Nice. It's a hobby. He doesn't like to talk about it. (laughs) Finally, password managers. We're always talking on Naked Security about how people should use a password manager. Matt, before we get into the story, do you want to talk us through why? Why are you laughing at me? I don't know, you looked very excited to talk about (laughs) it. I forgot it was me. It's me, I'm up. Yeah, I do want to talk you through password managers. What are they? So instead of having a different password for every single site that you have to remember, 
or as quite a lot of people, so I've heard, do have the same password for every single site. You can have a place to manage all of your passwords and it can auto-generate passwords for all of these different websites and you have one master password to get into that place that's managing your passwords. So it's a way of keeping security simple for everybody. And the reason that this has become a necessity, and these are stats that the independent security evaluators have published, who are the people that we're going to be talking about in just a second, they said that there were... On average, the average person had 25 passwords in 2007. That jumped up to about 130 passwords in 2015. And then they've predicted that it's going to grow to around 207 passwords in 2020. That's a very precise number. It is is very precise. I've got no idea where they've got those stats from. But nonetheless, I think we can all agree that that the amount of passwords that you have now... Yeah. Are a lot. You've it's got not a lot three. to remember. Yeah, it's not three. And to remember 207, if it is going to be that number, 207 different passwords that are completely unique and don't follow some sort of pattern of some sort, it is going to be quite difficult. Yeah, so the, the ratio I saw was something that along the lines of, I think it was 20, you know, you've got 25 different services that you need passwords for, but you've only got three passwords, something like that. And this is borne out, we see this with credential stuffing attacks all the time. The, the crooks know that people are reusing passwords. Uh, it's a huge security issue. So password managers are good, but researchers have found a weakness in many common ones. Is that right? That is right. So um, in this research that they've published, they start off by saying, Password managers are great, and password managers are better than not having a password manager. So what's the bug? So the bug is that they've used, they've been able to scrape the memory on a machine, and they've been able to see that in memory, those password managers are either obfuscating the passwords that are being used when you're putting them onto websites, or obfuscating the master password, and leaving it there to, to be accessible to someone that's got full administrative access to your machine or they're not even obfuscating it and they've just got the passwords there that you're using, whether that's the master password to the password manager or the individual passwords for those websites. So the master password is the crown jewels, isn't it? That's the crown jewels. Because presumably when you type it in, it needs to get verified, but then you'd hope that even if you've got the application open, once you've typed it in and it's been able to unlock the subsidiary passwords... It'll get wiped out of memory and that anyone snooping would have a really, really minimal time to be able to sniff it out. Is that the, is that the concern? Yeah. This isn't something that can be done remotely, right? It's the, the website you're logging into with the password manager isn't going to give anything away. That's not what this research found. No, that's not what this research found. It's that they found that when they were logged onto that computer with administrative access, they were able to retrieve those passwords off of that machine. However, that doesn't necessarily go to say that somebody couldn't perform this remotely if they'd got malware onto your machine. But if they got malware on your computer, why wouldn't they just use a keylogger anyway? And then they get your password before while you're typing it in. Either's a problem, right? So, so yeah, having a keylogger on your machine would have the same effect. So how much do we need to worry about it? In truth, not that much. If you've got a password manager, you don't need to jump ship and think I'm not even worth. It's not even worth having this uh, because that's not true. Uh, what these researchers are doing is they're just trying to say, hey, we've got these password managers that we believe are very secure, but let's just try and make some minor improvements on what what is already quite good. 
So they've found some minor improvements that can be made by these password managers. And some of the password managers um, that the organizations that own them have taken it on board and they're going to fix these problems. Others have have said that it's not really that much of a problem, which I kind of agree with. Yeah, there's a a lot of talk these days about threat modeling. And you have to think, okay, so if your threat modeling and password manager is the right answer to your threat model, the threat that you're dealing with is the threat of password reuse of credential stuffing of, of having your password cracked, you know, so a password manager will generate a strong password for you, likely stronger than the one that you would do without the password manager. So it's dealing very successfully mm. with some very, very serious threats. And then what these guys have done is they have found a different kind of threat mm. that you also have to deal with. And I think it's great that they found the information. I think it's great that the password managers are either explaining why they don't think that's a problem or they're fixing it. And I see this as part of the process of improving password managers. If password managers are going to have people's trust, which they need in order to spread, Mm -hmm. they've got to be able to deal with things like this efficiently. Matt, am I right that the... One of the things that these guys tested for the mainstream password managers they looked at was what happens when you actually shut down the password manager app entirely? Do they leave anything behind? And my understanding is when they went back in, there was nothing lying around on the disk, was there? So by exiting the app, they weren't being sloppy about how they stored things. They were properly encrypted. They used proper salt hash stretch to make sure it was hard to mount an attack against the password database it was only while you were actually in the process of using the password manager whilst you were using the password manager and also they tested it whilst it was locked and one of the problems that they found that's where you leave the app open and there's a little padlock button that you go sign out basically yeah yeah so so when they yeah when they locked it on some of the password managers i'm not just going to name and shame each one because then this will just become a list (laughs) yeah Uh, but but when they locked the password managers, some of them still revealed passwords within memory. And I think this is a problem. But you still needed to have another program running that had full admin rights, that was able to read other processes' memory, that was able to do debugging and instrumentation of the process. It wasn't just a weakness that meant that this stuff could be sucked out by some JavaScript in a web page. Yeah, yeah. And this isn't the first time we've faced in-memory password stealing Keyloggers, as you've mentioned before, and also uh, on a Windows system, if you look up something called Mimikatz, somebody has automated this process for Windows logged in users. So when you're logged in to your Windows device, uh, that password and username that you're using is stored in plain text and memory, uh, meaning that it can be read by an active adversary on your machine. So they're able to get your Windows password by having administrative access to your machine. It crops up a lot in targeting ransomware attacks. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of the part of the standard template for privilege escalation. If you can become a user of any kind on a machine with privilege enough to run Mimikatz, then you just sort of wait for an administrator to log on and then you can hoover up their credentials. The password manager that interests me most in this is the one where they responded and said, actually, we don't think this is a problem. They talked about design trade-offs and design compromises and I would like to know what those design compromises are because I can imagine a situation where to me the big problem with password managers is actually that there aren't enough people using them and I can imagine a scenario where a company does some research and they say the reason that people don't like using password managers is because they're too slow for example and therefore it's better to have a password manager that does a lot of aggressive caching so that people want to use it and use it more often, and that solves a bigger threat 
the kind of access you need in order to exploit these bugs. Something pretty bad has already happened. Mm. And then I've got a whole range of options about how I might use that access to your detriment. A, a complicated option is then to try and fish your password manager passwords out of memory. But there's probably a whole bunch of much easier things you can do. For many users, if you fire up their browser and go to a few of the main sites, yep. you'll find there are authentication tokens stored in local web storage or as cookies that just let you in. And it's an act of will to go and log out. And I assume in this case, if you're willing to use two-factor authentication and to go through the admittedly small amount of extra pain that causes, then that reduces the danger that happens if your password does get compromised. Absolutely, because if the, even if they do grab that password from memory on your device, they try and use it somewhere else, they haven't got the second factor, whether that's your mobile phone or a YubiKey or something else, they haven't got that on them to be able to bypass the authentication on that website. So in summary, do use a password manager, do patch your password manager when the updates come out, and do use two-factor authentication. Absolutely. And pick a proper password for your master password. Um, that's about all from us this week. Duck, where can we find you on social media? I am at DuckBlog on Twitter. Mark? At Internet of Hens. I really want to see the Internet of Hens starting to tweet some, some I security think we should, advice. I think we should name them on Twitter, get people to vote for names. That is a great <laughs> idea. They, interestingly enough, as a result of this podcast, they do now have one, they've been listed in a Twitter cyber security yeah. list. Matt, where can we find you on social media? Infosec body on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Anna Brading on Twitter, and we are, of course, at Naked Security on Twitter and Instagram. You can also find us on Facebook by searching Naked Security. Please rate and review our podcast. It helps boost us up the charts and allows other people to find us. You can tweet us at Naked Security with suggestions for the podcast, or you can email us at tips at And until next time, stay, stay secure. secure.